0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's me, and I made it. <laughs> Monday it was touch and go. Uh, my doctor uh, yesterday told me that I could come today, so I'm here with uh, the approval of my physician, But he says I'm going to have to rest, so <laughs> if I just nod off, you all know what's happening. <laughs> my name is Mary Paul, and I'm an al who's happy, joyous, and free. Now, I'm so glad to be in a place where you can say the word big book without having to hide or catch a lot of flack for it, you know. never did understand that. Uh, I want to talk about how I have learned through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should do it. Everybody I've will. But <laughs> I want to share with you my experience about how I made the big book mine. You know, I want it doesn't mean that I don't read and study and use El and cover the privilege, or I most certainly do. but I found that the big book not only enhanced my Al-Anon program, but it changed my life it um, It was what I learned about alcoholism. Now, I don't know about y'all, but uh, one year after I was in the program, my husband came down with cancer, and then I read everything I could get my hands on about that disease because. That was going to affect my life, too, whatever affected him like that. And I wanted to know everything there was to know about it. And then it hit me when I was talking to my sponsor one day. You know, I lived in alcoholism for years and didn't know a thing about alcoholism. You know, I didn't think my husband was an alcoholic. I knew he was a drunk, but I didn't know he was an alcoholic. You know, he wasn't an under-the-bridge wino. God knows I kept him out from under the bridge, you know. That was not going to happen. And I thought that, you know, like a lot of people have preconceived ideas of what an alcohol is supposed to look like or what the disease is supposed to be about, and I didn't have a clue. And I was hurt. I heard over and over now and over. that alcoholism is a family disease. Well, if alcoholism is a family disease, why wouldn't you study the textbook on alcoholism? Because obviously you have it too. You know, now I can remember the first time I read the big book and I thought, God, he needs to do this and this and this and this and this. And I think that's probably why some people are against, uh, especially, you know, without a little guidance, someone reading the book but just like everything else I mean who who among us did not go to an open AA meeting hearing something go mm, 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 and give them the old elbow you know it's like did you get that did you get that and I know I remember one of the first things that I saw in the big book that really turned me on when it says sobriety is not enough i like that's it you owe me more than just being sober you owe me a lot, you know, and then I went on and I read a little further and I found out there were some things that I was going to have to do, too. But I received my first big book on my birthday over 23 years ago. And uh, it was during this time that my sponsor's husband, who some of y'all have met over the years, as he's gone around with this other gentleman, and they have shared about the big book all over the world. And so I learned when in their living room, sitting there listening to Joe and Charlotte talk about the big book, back and forth, back and forth, and asking questions and reading and going back and back. And what I found was after a period of time, I read the book, I saw me on those pages instead of my husband. It finally had sunk in that this was not just for the alcoholic, but this was the family disease of alcoholism. And other than the allergy to alcohol, I don't say that there's very much difference in us. Because what do you get when you sober up an alcoholic? You get a scream at al <laughs> I mean, that's the deal. You know, their problems are going to be the same as our problems. They're going to have to learn to live life on life's terms without drinking. And I'm going to have to learn to live life on life's terms without using the alcoholic as an excuse for everything. Because, you know, anything that went wrong in my life was his fault. I was always lily white, pure, self-righteous, you know, arrogant, snug, self-righteous, and dominating, I think it says in our literature, you know. And that was true. That was true. But I didn't understand it. Now, my home group, we have a big book study every Monday night at 6.30. It was done through the, the tradition on each one of us can do whatever we want to do, the autonomy. And so we've been having this big book study since not January of 1989. And I get real tickled because when we have, uh, some people in the other fellowship will come and join us. And when they come in there, it scares them. It scares them to go into a group of people who know more about the book than they do. You know. But it also, we tell them from the get-go that in this meeting, you don't share as an alcoholic. You share from the Al-Anon standpoint. And so we don't share. It. We don't talk about the alcoholic. We read from the book, and then we go. Now, how do you relate to that? You know, what does that say to you? And uh, and when they try to get off on drinking, we say, Hey, no drinking in here. We don't relate about drinking. Let's do thinking. <laughs> you talk about drunk thinking. Now we can go there. You know, we're the specialists in that. Uh, in our ODAT on July 21st it says there's no rules or regulation, no management, control, nobody says you must do this or you may not do that. That is government by principles and that's what we do. And so that what binds us together is a common problem. You know if we hadn't had alcoholism in our lives we wouldn't all be here tonight. And so what binds us together is the solution, the common solution. And a lot of our stuff in our outline list here came straight out of the big book. Word for word. And our welcome, although you may not like all of us, you'll come to love us in a very special way. The way we already love you. Talk with each other, reason things out. This is direct quotes from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you don't believe it, read it and you'll find it. I'm not going to tell you where either. Now, to me, the people that I've met who are really against us doing this, haven't studied it themselves, or haven't done it from the standpoint of how do I relate to the book? How do I? And uh, and I love it. The book even addresses this. It says there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is continual prior to investigation. You know that's one of my favorite sayings from the book. I have people on sponsors like this. I have this little little girl in Canada and you know that that's pretty remote out in Ontario she lives out not like y'all in the boonies you know so I you know I mean not knocking Amarillo but you know y'all are way out here and coming in you know I'm thinking what the hell's out here you know I'm looking and I'm looking in the plane and then I see oh well there's a nightclub there's somebody's joint I saw that coming in and then I found another so-and-so's place and I said they got drunks in this town I can tell that And if there's drugs in this town, there's crazies to match, and that's us. But this little old girl, she's up there in Canada, and so she eats three or four things. And I tell her, I said, Bonnie, why don't you try something different? And she said, well, I don't like it. I said, have you ever tried it? She said, no. I said, how do you know? I said, if you've never had anything but English peas, how the hell do you know you don't like green beans? (laughs) I told that to a girl that I sponsored who didn't know how there was going to be life after her one and only love of life, too, you know. There's lots of others out there to try, you know. But that's contempt prior to investigation, when you know you don't like something, even though you've never done it. You know, now I've gotten into a lot of trouble because, you know, my drug of choice is adrenaline. That's what I learned in the book. And uh, I'm an excitement junkie. And so I'll do anything. You you know, anybody says, you want to do this, you want to do that. Oh, hell yeah, I've never done that before. Now, I have got a little bit of sanity in step two. I haven't done bungee jumping yet. But there may come a day when I'll go right over the edge, you know. Now uh, there's uh... learning how to live life on life's terms is what the book is all about. And I found myself on the pages of that book and a lot of my friends in AA tell me that I'm just one six-pack short of being an alcoholic. But that's not true because beer's not my drug of choice, you know. I like vodka. Now... <laughs> You know, why bother with beer? Um, with the, just like with the, they talk about the book, A Real Alcoholic. Well, with a real Al-Anon, the drug doesn't do for us what it does for other people. See, that's what makes an alcoholic. Alcohol does something different for an alcoholic. Guess what? Alcoholics do something different for me. It's the person who drinks it that does something for me. Because that's exciting. Have you ever noticed so much excitement around alcoholics? You never, I mean, even though it's crazy and it's mad, you know, I can remember one time uh, I was over at the vice president's house, we were at a meeting, not the vice president of my company. Don't even go there. Uh, I think Vice says it all. Anyway, now, and we were all enjoying ourselves, I thought, and then I missed him. You know how that happens when you're at a party and there's alcohol and you miss them? And then I heard this strange little muted sound, and I look around, and he's inside the fireplace. He's got his head up the chimney, and he's saying, there's all sorts of little spiders and things in here. And it's like, oh, God. But, you know, I wouldn't trade those times for anything. Because that's when you have to be real creative, you know. That really gets your juices flowing, you know. you got to get them out of the fireplace where it doesn't look bad. (laughs) So, they say in the book for alcoholics that when it comes to alcohol, they are strangely insane. But they have. makes them strangely insane when it comes to alcoholics. I am strangely insane because I do really crazy things you know, we're at the Christmas party, it's again that time of the year, we're at the Christmas party at the country club. And um, of course, you know, I was okay when he was uh, making rude um, comments. I was okay when he was crawling around on the floor and on the table. I was not okay when he was puking on a bush out in front of the country club. <laughs> I mean, I was not okay. Now everybody there might have missed that, <laughs> except for the announcement. You're out puking on a bush. Now, you know, a sane person would have gone on, got in the car, and left instead of out there announcing for the entire the country club parking lot that so and so is puking on a bush. <laughs> so, alcoholism is a family disease, and I've been affected. You can tell I am affected. <laughs> And we adapted the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous for our recovery. We changed only one word. In step 12, where it says alcoholics, we say others. That's all. One little word always changed. So we are affected by the same illness. And as far as, like, say, I'm concerned, I have the uh, addictive personality. I'm obsessive-compulsive. Is there ever too much of a good thing? I mean, really. You know, if it feels good, do it till you die on the spot. For God's sake. Don't stop when you're tired, you know. Wait till you can't function, you know. And they drag you out, you know. I love that. And I love the excitement in that. I love the tension. God knows you get attention when you're around a drunk. And I loved being needed. That's some of the things that called me from the disease of alcoholism. You know, he needed alcohol. I needed him to need me. There's a challenge there. Always been one up for the challenge. Don't tell me I can't do something. My mama made that mistake a lot. Got in a lot of trouble. All of her fault. If she hadn't said, don't do that, I wouldn't have had to do it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have had to do a lot of that. I remember one time I, uh, mama, we lived uh, by the Arkansas River. And, uh, mama said, don't go out and play on the sandbar down at the river. Well, you know, there's little pockets of water around the sandbar that are very, very deep, and it, there's a tremendous current, and they won't let you swim in the river because people drown all the time. But, you know, when you're a child and you're crazy, you're bulletproof, you know? And I hadn't even thought about going down to the sandbar, but once Mother suggested that, I could hear it calling to me, you know, Mary Pearl, and so I got with a bunch of the boys in the neighborhood and we went down to the sandbar and it was wonderful down there. I mean, they had these little trees, we called them saplings, and you could pull them, get two or three kids, pull a tree over and you get in the top of it and they let it go. And you just slingshot. I mean, it's like, almost like Peter Pan for about three seconds. You don't fly along and there's always a crash landing, but damn, it's fun. And I broke my leg. And I told them I can't have a broke leg, not on the sandbar. So they drugged my body. Now this was very painful, it just shows you the length that I'm willing to go in pain. I'm 14 years old and I'm willing to suffer all this pain, the physical pain of being drugged a quarter of a mile and put under a tree. And then they went and told my I fell out of the tree. See, it's acceptable to fall out of the tree in your backyard. Not on the sandbar. <laughs> yeah. So, as it just shows you, you know, there's a, there's a little insanity running in here. Uh, okay. And I also have this need to manage and control my environment. I need everything around me to be in its place and everything to have a place and I need all these little things going the way I want them to go so that I don't have to deal with my fears. I don't have to deal with my feelings when I can control the environment around me. Well, we all know we're powerless, so you can see I'm going to have problems right off, you know, because I'm not going to be able to do that. But I never knew these were things that were wrong with me. I didn't have a clue there was anything wrong with the way I thought, the way I acted. Well, later on, I mean, you get thrown in jail. That's a pretty good indicator something's going wrong. But, but I'm saying for the most part, it was always, it was such a good plan. You know, we make plans and God gets hysterical. You know, he's going, huh, oh, they're flying again." in. <laughs> you know. But see, that's where the alcohol, we find, is only a symptom of the disease to the alcoholic. See, I thought if alcohol were removed from my husband, then I would be okay. Now, today that doesn't make any more sense than, I have a headache, would you take my aspirin? But that was how I lived, and I mean, I lived for years thinking if he had quit drinking, then I would be okay because I did lots of crazy things. All he did was drink. He's pretty much a quiet little individual just over there drinking himself into oblivion, and I could not allow that to happen because if I allowed that to happen, he would get out of control. In other words, he wasn't doing what I told him to do. And I had to stop that. I had to manage that. And I did a lot of things trying to manage the, the disease of alcoholism.
1: <clears throat>
0: Lots of little crazy things. But the book that tells us that we have to have, if we're going to get past this, if we're going to get out of the disease, we're going to have to have a complete an entire psychic change. Now how does that come about and why do you even need it? See, I didn't need it. He was the one that needed to change. Well, he changed. Guess what? It didn't help me. Now, that's not to say that our home, I mean, we didn't have to worry about, you know, the hit and run episode. We didn't have to worry about the, the sheriff or the attorney general people knocking on the front door so much anymore. But the feelings that I had on the inside, the fears, the frustrations, the rage that I had on the inside. It did not help for him to get sober. So I was going to have to have some help too. And the book tells us that there's very little hope for doing things differently without a, a, a psychic change. You just can't do it without that change. And I was going to need more than human power. And that's what the book gives us. It tells us that, that, you know, our life's out of control. Our life's unmanageable. You know? And no human power can do this for us, and that's my power, your power, no human power, but God could and would if He were sought. And I didn't like God. That was one of the things I had a lot of problems with when I first came in Elanon. I did not want to say the Lord's Prayer. I did not want to talk about God. I didn't like God. God didn't like me. He leave me alone. I'll leave Him alone. And that was sort of how it was. Now, I don't know if everybody felt, obviously we all come from a different place in that. But my deal was I had been raised in church and I went to Sunday school and I believed all the things that they told me and then I watched my daddy die. Forty-six years ago yesterday, I watched my daddy die of a heart attack. And I knew that if God loved me, really loved me, like in the little song we always sing, Jesus loves me. Well, he didn't love me because he took the one person in the world that I could depend on, that I knew loved me, that I knew cared about me. I knew my mother did not love me, much less loved me. It was pretty obvious. You know? And to me it was as a child because I could not get my mother's approval. And approval meant love to me as a child. And so when I couldn't get approval, I did everything I could then to get disapproval because I'll get attention whether I get approval or not. And so I turned my back on any type of spiritual belief or training at the age of 12. And then as I went along my life, it's not that I didn't believe there was God. I just believed that I was one of those that God says she ain't going to make it. And so I'm not going to make it anyway, so I might as well do whatever the hell I want to now. And that was my attitude about it. And I just didn't, and every time something really bad I thought happened to me, I knew it was God getting me. See, it just proved that bad opinion I had of myself. Now, the book says that each person has to make their own diagnosis as to whether they're an alcoholic or an alcoholic. You know, that's the reason we even tell people when they come to our meetings, come at least six times for you to decide whether you believe that you want to do this. See, it's really a self-diagnosis thing. And the common symptoms, you know, is that we need to control our environment. And that's because most of us live in self-centered fear. Self-centered fear. Uh, trying to keep it all together. Straighten up. What are people going to think? You know, that self-centered fear. What are people going to think about me when they see you out there puking on the bush? Forget about what people think when they hear me screaming. Cause I'm not focusing on me. I'm focusing on you. You know. There was uh, my sister did not understand the disease of alcoholism either. And the, the irony to this is, our grandfather died with wet brain from alcoholism. Grandma died of cirrhosis of the liver from alcoholism. My favorite uncle was shot in bed with another man's wife. He was drunk at the time. I loved him. And and I had two aunts that were practicing. My mother it was the only one in her family that did not drink. And she said she carried the bad seed. She was terrified of alcoholism because her father had physically, emotionally, and sexually abused her. And so she knew all these horror things about alcoholism, you know. So it wasn't that we didn't know about alcoholism, but you don't recognize it, you know. You just don't. And and like I say, I had to keep this big image up that I'm okay. I've got to be okay regardless. Well, my sister, like I say, didn't understand alcoholism, and... So she bought JD a wine making kit for Christmas one year. Now up to this point we have a bourbon drinking man, you know, and now he's going to be the little wine maker. And I read the directions. You know how we are. We get in there and we read the information. We got to check it all out, you know. They might not be intelligent enough to know how to do this. Well, you got to be in control. I mean, if you're going to have wine, by God, I'm going to be the wine maker. And one of the things I noticed was it had to sit for a year before you drink it. And I got hysterical. <laughs> Twenty-four bottles of wine are going to sit in this house for a year. <laughs> it's still funny to think about it. So anyway, oh, yeah, he going to do that. No big deal. Well, this girl I worked with was pregnant. We were going to give her a baby shower. And all the guys were going to be over at her husband, over at their house with her husband. And so we lived in one town, and the shower was taking place in another. When I got in that evening from work, I went tearing in and we're changing clothes and getting ready to go. And J.D. was sitting there and had a big, you know how we had big iced tea glasses? I love it in the South. You know, when you go to a meal, you don't get those little dinky glasses. You know, up north, they're real bad about that. you got to ask for six of them, you know. But here we get a decent size of glasses. Hey, well, he had this glass, and I looked over and I said, what's in the glass? He said, Kool-Aid. He said, great Kool-Aid. I said, oh. Well, we get in there and get ready to go, and he said, Honey, why don't you drive? I'm tired. And I said, Okay. So I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, J.D. just sort of went down out of the seat and into the floorboard of the truck. And I said, What the hell's the matter with you? And he said, I don't know. Now, I had never seen anyone struck drunk before. I mean, he was fine one minute, next minute he's not. And I said... You're drunk, and he goes, "Yeah." <laughs>
1: and
0: I said, "Where did you get it?" And he said, "It was the grape juice." <laughs> I said, "Grape Kool-Aid." He said, "No, was a bottle of that wine. That's about maybe two months old." <laughs>
1: well,
0: I didn't know how crazy that stuff was going to make him, you know, And he just lay in there, and I didn't know how crazy it was going to make me either. And so I told him, I said, "Straighten up." Now, he is liquid, and he's going, and I'm going, this is not acceptable, don't you embarrass me, I work with these people, and he said, I'll try. so he got himself up in the seat, he opened the door, he got out and did a triple flip right into a cactus garden. Well, he's wallowing around there in the cactus, screaming and hollering. We've arrived. Well, I get my girlfriend, and we go over to this other place, and I'm going, oh, my God, oh, my God, and left him with the men. I'm thinking, they can take care of him. You know, they, they can pick all those little things out, whatever needs to be And when I got back, they were all just looking at me. And he was sitting there, and they were playing cards. Now, half of his cards were facing the wrong way. Now, these are serious poker-playing people. And I said to them, I said, what happened? They said, he is so drunk. And I said, still? I mean, you know, I couldn't understand why it was taking so long. That, that green wine was bad. And so they said, well, what he needs? And what do, what do earth people think people need? You need coffee or food. Oh. So they took him. They were afraid to leave him there, I was getting a little testy. And they took him and off they went to go to McDonald's. And they were gone for several hours because they lost him. This is before the days of the drive-in and so they had gone in and left him in the car and they came back and he was gone and they knew they could not come back without him. And some kids had him in the back of the car, drove off, took him, showed him, and he, I don't know what happened there. And then they finally brought him back where they did the scene of the accident, you know. And, and so they brought him home. Now his solution to this little episode was, we'll never go back there again. I said, Really? But I was a crazed person, you know. I was a crazed person, you know. And I had to look honestly at me. What was my part in that whole deal? You know, I should have not have taken him with me. When, when he went down in the seat, I should have made a U-turn, been late going to the But see, that never occurred to me. Good, logical thinking did not occur to me because my thinking was very, very sick he had to be with me. It was very important for us to present a couple but he had to be okay. And I would give him all this. And and, and another year we were going back to the country club. I said, I just never learned. I kept going back, you know, doing the same thing, expecting something different all the time. And I mean, and he was drunk before we left the house. And I said to him, I was just, you know, you know, just chewing him out all the way there, and I rear into the car. Because I was telling him. And because there was so much alcohol on him, I had to take the sobriety field test. <laughs> anyway, we were only a few blocks from the country club and all my friends are turning on seeing me out there. You know, I had to identify here. And I saw the progression of my own disease from the time I was a little girl and the defects of character that I had as a child and what had happened to me again. And I began to realize for all my life, I mean, I'm a smart lady, you know. I have a wonderful IQ. doesn't show, you know. And you see yourself. You know, what's a girl like you doing in a place like this? I said that, you know, I've I've been in places I wouldn't be caught dead in. I'm telling you, I have gone into places, I mean, with like motorcycle gangs and stuff like that, you know. And, I mean, got in there and and come out, you know, and you you thought, I mean, it's just bad. And it's like, I I wasn't raised to be like this. What has happened here? What is happening here, you know? That self-knowledge wasn't much help to me. Because I knew a lot of things, but I couldn't seem not to do it. It's like, if he gets drunk, I'm going to be crazy. Now, I know that. And it's like when he would come home, there was a lot of violence in our home. Not from him, from me. Because, you see, my little boy had gone out. done what I told him not to, so he would go his ass when he comes home. It's just so simple. <laughs> and I hated how I felt about me when I do things like that. And I'd say, I'm not going to fight. I don't care what he says. I'm not going to fight. And he'd come home and the door would open. My mouth would too, you know. And then he'd look over at me and I'd say, and I'd say I'm said, i not gonna fight, I'm not gonna fight, I'm not gonna fight, I'm not gonna fight, I know this doesn't work, I'm not gonna fight. He'd say, hey bitch, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna fight, I'm not gonna fight, I'm not gonna fight,
1: I'm not gonna
0: fight. <laughs> hey! That woman. <laughs> oh. oh. See, we know what to do, you know, and then I'd be just, yeah, and I'd fling on him, you know, and then pulverize him, you know, don't, I'd call me a bitch, okay, I know that, don't call me fat, that hurts my feelings, why, I'm fat, that's why, don't you hate it when people call it like it is, Blah! you know, that's the progression, you know, and thinking every time, this time it's going to be different. But nothing's different until somebody's different. And there wasn't anything different. I couldn't control my thinking. I couldn't control my mouth. I couldn't control my actions, my reactions. Uh, I mean, years and years, even before the, the, uh, I mean, like the very first job I was on, I smarted off one day to the president of the company. Didn't seem like a big deal. I was on my lunch hour. I mean, <laughs> my free time, you know, I was sitting there talking to a switchboard operator and he said, don't you have something to do? And I said, not on my laptop. Well, that cost me my job. Not that day, not that week, but that smart aleck comment me, it cost me that job down the line. Because, you see, I was a smart aleck. I was, and I call myself quick wit. <laughs> Isn't that funny how you put such a good label on a bad action, you know, so that you... Because I couldn't be wrong. When I got in down on the very first speaker that I ever heard was a lady from Oklahoma and her name was Ramona. A lot of y'all may have been blessed enough to know her. And she talked about giving me her God. That's what she'd say. She'd say, I'd give you my God. But if I did, then I'd take away the joy you find in your own. And I'd say, that's okay. Because <laughs> I've always wanted the easier, softer weight. I want to do it quick, fast. You know, do something even if it's wrong. I didn't have a clue how to find my higher power. And I've been so close-minded about all that God stuff all my years. And I just knew if God loved me, he wouldn't have taken Daddy away. Now, I didn't quit going to church because Mama made me. <laughs> it's real funny. I, uh, I've always been a night person up until this year. And um, we lived next to a railroad track. We always laughed about We lived on the right side of the track. The train still knocks the, the buildings apart, no matter which side you live on. And um, Mama would come in and she'd say, get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get ready. And I'd say, okay, okay. And then I'd just lay there. Now, i have done this from the time I was in the first grade school. I'm the kind that, you know, she'd just throw me out of the bed, drag me down. I never ate breakfast and who could have time? I'd rather sleep because I don't want to be up in the morning. And so this Sunday, Mama telling me, get out of bed, get out of bed. She said, God's going to get you one of these days. God's going to get you. And so I'm laying there in bed, and all of a sudden I hear it. And I look up, and all these little cracks are forming over my head. See, we had real plaster. And I jumped up out of bed, ran in the hall, and the ceiling of my room fell in. I said, okay, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> you know. I heard things there, though, that say, you're guilty if you think it, much less do it. Oh, Well. You know, I knew I was a goner, so I just said to heck with it, you know. So a couple of times during the act of drinking, J.D. would be the one that would say, why don't we go to church? Maybe that will help me and I won't have to drink. And I'd do anything for him, so I'd go with him to church. And I had some bad experiences there. Uh, the first church that uh, the sweet little Baptist ladies, God love them, uh, they couldn't help me in who they were. I couldn't help being who I was. And J.D. and I had been living together. And this, uh, they came by the house one day and little did they know we'd been married now for two months. And they came by the house and they told me they didn't need me there in their church anymore because they didn't need sinners in their church. So see, I took that as a personal rejection, not from the little Baptist lady. I took that as a rejection from God. God didn't want me. And so then about six, seven years later, JD's making another approach to this time he's going to a Methodist church and he wants me to go. And so I go to the church with him that morning, and I have on a gabardine pantsuit, jacket, blouse, slacks, hose, heels. And they told me I couldn't come in. You can't wear pants to church on Sunday morning. Now, you can come Sunday night. And I said, well, who's the God that comes in on Sunday night? (laughs) See, there's that smart mouth again, you know. And it's like they embarrass me, so what do I do? My mouth comes out, you know. And it embarrassed me, so I said, I'm just never gonna go back. So one more time I took it as the rejection from God, not from the little old ladies there at the church. And the old eyes have to be the old ideas have to be defeated. You have to get rid of an old idea before you can have a new idea. And I found out you don't have to like something to accept it. And once you accept it, it loses its power over you. And this continues to be a process like if you think that I stand before you today a shadow of my former self because I got up one morning and said, gee, I think I'll lose 100 pounds, that was not the case. That was not the case. A year ago yesterday, 45 years to the day Daddy died, my sister died in my car with me. And I rushed her to the hospital and um, I had had her to the doctor that morning. And uh, as I was coming back, I had gone to the drugstore to get her a prescription and when I came out she choked a couple of times and then her chest quit moving. And it was in bumper to bumper traffic in front of the biggest mall we have in Arkansas. And uh, I got her to the hospital, but she went without oxygen for 12 minutes. And they were able to revive Dorothy, but Dorothy is no longer with me. My sister as I knew her will never be the same. And the doctor told me I started shaking. And I couldn't quit shaking for days. And he said, I think you need to be seen. And they found out I have a heart condition. So here was I in one hospital having a heart catheterization. And here's Dorothy in another one. And I see you and J.D. going back and forth between the two. Because you see, that's all the natural family I have this is my sister and she and me. So anyway, I found out that you can follow the doctor's orders and do what he tells you to do in order to get the results you want. And that's what I learned in the book. You don't have to like it to accept it. You don't. You just, by God, do it. And so I did exactly what they told me to do. He told me I was borderline diabetic, and my sisters being diabetic was what put her in the condition she was in. She had kidney failure. So when the doctor told me I have a kidney infection this weekend, that got my attention, y'all. <laughs> but anyway, um, I went ahead and I did exactly what he said to do, and as a result, two weeks ago, my doctor released me. The heart doctor then said that I'm fine, I'm released for a year. I'm no longer a borderline diabetic. All of that has self-corrected itself. And I've been on high blood pressure medication since I was 30. And I will no longer have high blood pressure. If anything, it's low. Can you believe it? So you see, I get the benefits because, why? Did I want to do it? No. Did I like doing it? No. Did I enjoy telling myself no? No. Did I cheat? No. And that was the discipline that I learned from working the program. That was the discipline. That's acceptance. You have to accept the reality and I had to accept the reality of the situation I was in and then do what I was told to do. And that's what the book is about. Accept the reality of alcoholism in your life. Acceptance comes hard for me. I don't know about you all but it has to get my attention. First, I, you know I fight stuff and not realizing I'm fighting stuff. I don't know if you all do this or not. Uh, I had my, my best example of this in a long time. Is um, I don't like cats. I just start off with that. You know, I don't like cats. Uh, my sister had a cat one time that jumped on me. I had to have 16 stitches. I don't trust cats. Don't like cats. They're sneaky little bunnies. You know. <laughs> dog at least will bark. You know, before he attacks. But a cat just gets you. And uh, I planted this beautiful flower bed. I walked on it. You know how we are. We never do anything a little bit. And so I went out there and I planned this flower bed that goes across the whole front of my house. And it's a free form flower bed. And I um, went to the quarry and I got my rocks one at a time, picking them out so they'd all be the same size. I got these New Mexico white river rocks. And I got all these wonderful rocks and I lined them up in this little free form out there across the quarry because I had made me a template so I'd know exactly where I'd have one rock too many and not one rock too few. And so I've got all my rocks lined up, took an entire day, not that I'm a perfectionist or anything. Went back home and I put those in and I put big elephant ears across the front of the house and then around this border I put hostas, a variegated hosta, a plain, a variegated a plane, you know. Now, they're all perfect, and in between, there's 15 foot. Impatience. 17 flats of impatience. Never do anything a little bit, you know. And guess what? Now, you're going to let them grow, and they get out there, and they start coming up. Well, you water them. Now, the instructions on the little thing of Miracle Grow. I got Miracle Grow because you know those commercials where you see the guy like, I got a 50 pound tomato here, use Miracle Grow. I thought Miracle Grow is what I need.
1: <laughs>
0: so, it says once a month to water with Miracle Grow. Well, if once a month is good, once a week is better. <laughs> People are driving by and going, my God, did you ever see impatience like those? They're four foot tall. It's just a little rainbow blanket. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. I mean, it was gorgeous. You know, people taking pictures, you know, and all of this. I'm just, oh, this is my flowers. I'm waiting for the miracle girl people to come so I can do my endorsements, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: come home one day and there's a big hole in the middle of my impatience. What happened? What happened here? Because, do you realize it's screwed up now? Because there's no way you can plant more impatience They'll never be the same. I mean, it's just—it's perfection is ruined, just ruined. And so I'm hysterical out there trying to figure it out. JD finally one morning he says, "Come here. I found what it is." I said, "What is it?" Because every day more impatience are coming down. I said, "Is it gophers? What is it? What is it?" They're being broken off at the top of the ground. It's cat. This one big calico cat. She's using those impatience to lurk. So she can attack the squirrels and the birds. Now, I'm gonna change the nature of the cat. <laughs> I don't put it in my mind like that, but I'm gonna stop the cat from eating the birds and squirrels and using my flower bed. The flower bed's already ruined, forget that, but I'm gonna get the cat out of there. So I begin to canvass people what to do to get rid of a cat. They say mothballs. Cats don't like mothballs. So I get or three boxes of off, and I put them all over the yard. You can smell our house from two blocks away. Doesn't bother the cat. Somebody said, well, cayenne pepper. So I go to Sam's and I get me two of those big gallons of, of the, the, the ground-up cayenne pepper like you put on pizzas and stuff, and I go out there and I put it all over the ground. The cat will walk on it, he'll lick it, it'll be too hot, he won't like it. The Mexican cat, what can I tell you? He loves the damn supper. I don't understand, you know. I moved the bird feeder, you know. I'm doing everything I can out there, and then finally I said, "Okay, that's it. I can't handle it. I've got a here rifle, a little crossman pellet gun type thing." So I declared war. And so I would watch out the front window, and I'd see the cat, and then I'd lurk out on the porch, and I'd pump up my gun, pumped it up about three times, beat it in him, bore a hole, and the cat goes, get out! But the cat came back. So I pumped it up six times, and I beat in on the cat and shoot him again in the butt, and he goes, get out! But he comes back. I have an cat now. He's doing the same thing, expecting something different. So now I'm mad. I pump that gun up to 10. And I am working now. And so every time I go out, the cat's doing like this, and I'm doing like this. And I see him out there, and so I take a bead on him, and I shot. And just as I shot, he jumped over the fence, and I knocked a hole in the neighbor's house. Not good. <laughs> so spring the next year comes around and I'm back buying impatience. I'm going to do the same thing expecting something different. And sure enough, I watered with Miracle Girl, got it all pretty and guess what? The cat came back. The cat came back. And I am just hysterical. I'm out there and I have, I have, uh, asked all these things. I've gone to the pet stores. I've got all this cat repellent. I've done everything, and he said, so finally I decided he has to die. I have a 38. So what I do is I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about it, and I wrote this friend of mine on the, email, on the Internet and was telling him about what I was going to do, and he said, let me share a little experience with you. He said, I have these golden retriever show dogs, in the, and he lives out in the country, and he said, the guy lives down from him, this little dog kept coming up trying to service his dogs. And he said he told him about it and he said, well, it's a stray dog. Hangs around my place, but it's not really our pet. So feel free to kill it if you want to. So one morning he said he shot the dog, but he didn't kill him on the first shot. He went through his spine and he said, I'll never forget that scream to my dying day. And then having to go out there and finish him off. Thanks for sharing. What if I don't kill the cat on the first walk? You know. So, I'm sitting there now, I've been talking to my sponsor for two years about the cat. And she just laughs. <laughs> and I'm calling her that day and I'm telling her that and she said, when are you going to catch on? Boy, I hate it when they do that, you know. Like, what have I missed? What have I missed? Cause see, I was so into the obsession with the cat. I'm going to manage and control the environment here. I'm going to teach a cat how not to be a cat. A cat's a predator. That's what they do. I'm trying to change the nature of the cat. Oh, I guess I have to accept the cat. I mean, give me arsenic. It's easier. You know, and so I say to myself, okay, if I have to accept the cat, I'll accept the cat. Oh, I'll accept the cat. I'll accept the cat. So I walked down the porch and the cat's like this, and I screamed, Welcome to my yard, F.C. You can be my yard cat. Eat the birds, eat the squirrels, who gives a damn? Welcome. Make my home your home. And I turned around and went back in the house, I said, I'm going to puke. And J.D. is just dying laughing. He said, That is hysterical. And I said, Well... I've been taught that you need to accept it to the point you wouldn't change it if you could, so I'm taking the action. I don't want to do it, but I'm taking the action. I give up. I'm throwing in the towel. I'll accept the cat. Next morning, I get up. I'm doing my readings, my meditation. I happen to look out the front window. One of my squirrels is eating a limb off of my Japanese bonsai. You know, they have very few little limbs. And I mean... Oh my god, I went tearing out the door, screaming down the street, going, where the hell's my cat? Where is my cat?
1: When you need the cat, where the hell
0: is he? He's this squirrel, he's this squirrel. Bad squirrel. And I'm standing there and I'm stomping at him and I'm telling him, get away, get away from my tree. And I'm looking around and this guy's driving by going, And I'm thinking, what is your problem?
1: And I happen to look
0: down, and I'm out there in my underwear. Now, I don't know where the cat is. I've never seen it since. And my sponsor says, that's God's way of saying, once you accept it, it can go away. You know, but then I, I couldn't let it go. I drove around for weeks looking for my cat. <laughs> I was afraid something had happened to the cat. Well, after all, he was my cat there.
1: <laughs>
0: In the book, it told me three things. It defined my problem. What's my problem? I'm powerless over people, places, and things, especially an alcoholic. It defines the solution. I don't have the power to manage my own life. I don't have the power that God can and will if I seek his guidance. And it taught me how to bring about the solution by living spiritual principles and trusting in a power greater than myself and by working the 12 Step Method of Recovery outlined in the book. And recovery begins when I'm willing to make a commitment. And I did that by getting a sponsor and doing the things I was told to do in the meetings. And most importantly, when I talk with another al when I hear that, by sharing experience, strength, and hope with one another, that to me is what it's all about. I've learned this program is not for people who need it, but people who want it, you know. So many times, you know, new people come into the meeting, and we want it so bad for them, you know. But they've got to want it, you know. And the book told me that I had a disease. Now, the word disease is D-I-S-E-A-S-E. I am not at ease with something. That's what disease is about. You're not at ease. And it's a condition that separates people. And a family disease does that. The disease of alcoholism separates people. It goes like it says in the book, like a tornado roaring through people's lives. And it's not just the alcoholic, but it's the al too. If you don't believe it, sponsor Alatane sometimes. Mm-hmm. And those kids will tell you, you know, they understand the alcoholic sick, but what the hell is wrong with a non-drinker? What's wrong with that one? That one was the one that was giving them all the grief. It wasn't the one that was drinking. It was that other one, you know. Uh, I began to see that when I substituted the word thinking for drinking, how my thinking had been bad all my life. And I had alcoholic traits or that personality. I love it. People say, the alcoholic personality, what is that? It's a sick personality. That's what it is. It's the disease. It is sick, you know. Uh, and that obsession, you know, I, I, it described my condition as best of anything I've ever known. You know, I'd get angry and then I'd have to get even. That was my deal. I got angry at my landlady in this land. I, I got really restless. I had a little dinky apartment in Newfoundland, and you can't imagine how confined it is to be in three rooms when you've got 290 inches of snow during the course of a year. And and in your bathroom, I, I think she used leftover paint. My bathroom was black, and it was four by four, and it had no window. And you could sit on the john with your feet in the shower and your hand in the sink. I mean, it was that close in there, you know. And I said, I wanted a window. I needed, I felt so claustrophobic in there, I needed a window. I went to base housing and they approved that I should have a window and they told her in order to continue to rent that house, I was going to have to have a window and she agreed to put in the window but the window did not appear on my time frame. And I waited, my god, two weeks, I know. From the time, from the time they told her to put in the window and then one day I just lost it and decided I'll put in the window. You start with a hatchet. And when you hacked the ball away, being told this is an apartment, and she lives in the one next to you, she felt a little of the vibration, and so I got a window that day. You know what I mean? But, I mean, see, that's the craziness. And so, therefore, I then, for the, for the next three years, I'm going to have a war with the landlady, because she's thinking, there's a crazy American there. You know why? There was a crazy American there. You know, give that woman lots and lots of grief. You know, she told me, she told my husband, she says, I don't even want to talk to her. She says, you bring me the rent check. No, no, no. Now we don't have door to door delivery for mail. I go to the base to get mine at the, at the APL box. But, what does she have to do? My landlady, she has to walk, because she doesn't have a car. She has to walk in that snow three miles across town to get her mail. I'll mail it to the heifer. That's what I did. I could have walked out my door and handed it. she I mean, we, we had, there were three apartments to each building. They were all military barracks, is what they had been at one time, and they had bought them. But she was in the middle, and I was on one end. I could have handed her that check, because she did. hurt my feelings, and she said she didn't want it, so make her walk for it. That was my deal. You know, make her pay. Always, don't let anybody get you. Get them one better. You know, one-upmanship. And that's just like, I, I went and joined the Wise Club, the NCO wives Club. Now, I don't know, how many of you have ever joined a women's club? Oh, they are grim. I mean, (laughs) grim. And especially when here we are overseas, but it was my uh, effort to try and mix with the other wives. I knew I didn't mix well with people. I'm either in charge or I don't go, so I don't mix well, you know. And so I'm going to go and just be a member. And we would sit there, and of course all these people had children. And I had found out the year before that I was sterile, and I wasn't going to have children. And I was, I didn't deal with those feelings. I had a great feeling of loss and I, and I felt very inadequate as a woman. I had a lot of bad feelings about that, but I just didn't, I honor those feelings. And so what I determined was, I didn't like you that had kids, because look at your kids, you know. And today that could be a really good excuse for birth control. I've seen a lot of kids that would make poster children for birth control, but, you know, but it wasn't so bad back in the early sixties like that. And so here I was, and I went to the club, and I don't think people pay attention when I talk about their kids at what other people say. All they want to do is tell you about theirs, because they begin to, everybody was sharing about their kids. Well, I had a dog at home, and so I began to talk about Chris like he was a person. And uh, they would say, you know, I've had so much trouble with this kid, and he's just now, I cannot remember when he didn't walk. <laughs> And they go, oh, and and just go right on with a thing like that. And then one of them says, well, when I discipline myself, I just lock him in a closet. And (laughs) Oh, you know. And I mean, they they, they went on like this for weeks. And then finally, I was in some kind of, we were getting some kind of deal together. And a girl came over to the house and she said, well, where's your son? And I said, they're on the couch. She said, it's a dog. That's a (laughs) gift. She said, I thought it was your child. I said, I never said it was. You just assumed. You know, and what I did, I embarrassed them, and so they threw me out of the club. Um, <laughs> but you see, that kind of a deal, see that little gamey stuff, you know. Okay. The solution for an alcoholic is he has to drink, or he goes insane, or he dies, or he goes to abstinence. I mean, that's it. You're into abstinence, insanity, or death. Well, for us, we have those three propositions. All ours is acceptance, insanity, or death. We have to accept life on life terms. And, uh, and the allergy to the alcohol, and remember, an allergy is an abnormal reaction to something. <laughs> well, don't we act a little abnormal sometimes? Don't we react a little, you know? And um, I'm crazy. I have lots of allergies. I uh, always have on my life. But... I have created some for myself, and I didn't know you could do that. That's like an alcoholic. You know, some of them say they're alcoholics on the first drink. Others say I drank for a long time, and then I became allergic to alcohol. Well, I was that way with tangerines. Now, I love tangerines. It's my favorite, favorite fruit, especially this time of the year. They're so good, you know, to get tangerines. But I can't eat tangerines because I abuse tangerines. I'm a tangerine abuser. (laughs) Now, I didn't know that about me, but see, They're little. And so I would tell myself, you can eat three to be the size of an orange, and so I would eat three. Well, I bought um, four dozen one weekend, and and uh, by Sunday night, I was griping to J.D. about where were the tangerines, and he said, look in the trash. He said, there's a bunch of peelings and seeds in the trash. And I said, so? He said, well, you've eaten them. I said, four dozen tangerines? I don't think so. But he hadn't had one. And I'm going, my God. I can't believe Well, the next morning when I woke up, I couldn't wake up. My eyes would not open. I looked like the fly. My face was so swollen, and I had an allergy from, I overdosed on the acid in the tangerine. And as a result now, I can't eat tangerine because if I, I, there's no way to eat just one. (laughs) And you know, if I could eat just one, it might be all right, but I'd have to have that two or three because, see, they're small. It's just like cigarettes, you know, the same thing. I, You know, I smoked for years. And then, you know, and today I'll think, boy, wouldn't a cigarette taste good after a meal? Yeah, but there's no way I can do that because I can't just do one of anything. See, I've learned that about me because I have an abnormal reaction to things, and I am obsessed. And once you abuse something, you create a condition or an abnormal reaction to it. Now, part of that insanity, like I say, is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. And this is what I did with people. I went to person to person to person just wanting to be loved. I wanted to be accepted for who I was and didn't have a clue who I was. Because, you know, we're always afraid that if somebody really knows us, they won't like us. How do we know? We never tell them who we are because we know us and we don't like us and therefore we don't want to be honest about that to somebody else. And when Bill was sharing in the book about his feelings of loneliness and the need for excitement, a need for importance and his self deception and pride and his need to control his environment, would I not relate to that? You know, I related. And then the progression of his disease, the fears, the remorse, the hopelessness, and the emotional hangover is what I had again and again looking in the mirror in the mornings and hating what I saw. You know, looking in the mirror and thinking, my God, what have I become? You know, that kind of thing. I had a lot of identity crisis this year. I would look in the mirror and I would see me like I saw me all these years, not how I was. And I would go to the store, and of course every week or two I'm having to buy new clothes (laughs) because as I'm losing a tremendous amount of weight, you know, you lose a 100 pounds, and... In eight months, and and it really makes a difference, you know. Everything changes. Even your glasses change. And you say, how do your glasses change? Well, your cheeks go away and your bifocals are in the wrong spot. And you have to read like this, you know. (laughs) It's honest to God, truth. You don't think about things like that. But when I would go to the store, I would go back to the place I have always gone. I'd go back to the women's department, and I'd go in there, and I'd look, and I'd try on things, and I couldn't find anything. And I would be real depressed, and then finally it was pointed out to me, there's other departments. Oh. Well, you see, I had always told myself, you won't, you can't fit in those departments, there's no need to go there. See, those old ideas, it's hard to break those old ideas, you know. And, uh, the will is amazingly strong when it comes to managing, controlling, and denial. That's where we seem to use our will the most, and that's where it's the least effective. But I can't think of anything that describes that more than what I've just told you. And yet that's the definition, you know, that they have in there for an alcoholic. But I saw lots of hope in Bill's story as well, especially when he said there was scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome by some one of us. You know, that's just like, I'm not the only person in the world that's had a heart condition. I'm not the only person. And believe it or not, I even found on the Internet, there's a lot of people who have this anoxic brain damage like my sister has. And I have been able to communicate with these people to get a little handle on how to deal with my feelings, you know, because life continues to happen, you know. I thought that for a long time that when you came in and you worked a program, you got bulletproof, and that life wouldn't happen. And if you did good things and if you tried really hard and if you you, if you loved God and all like that, the bad things wouldn't happen to you. And I found that's not necessarily the case. Because bad things happen to good people, just like good things happen to bad people. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) But I'm also glad because, you know, everything that happened to me in my life before I got here wasn't bad. I had some good things that happened to me along the way, too. But life still happens, you know. It's like, like say, we'd only been in the program a year and J.D. got cancer. And then his mom died. I had went through an ordeal with my mother for years, an ongoing thing with my mother. And then my sister had heart disease in 1995 and her diabetes was a problem. And then all of a sudden, look what happened to her a year ago yesterday. Who would have known? You know, I sent my, my uh, Christmas letter out on the Monday after Thanksgiving. And then the very next day, my whole world changed. The whole world as I knew it. The only thing that didn't change was al and the program. That was the only thing. And my God. Those were the only things. And thank God I had something that didn't change. I can't tell you how terrifying it is when everything changes. And then as the year progressed, it was the year of loss because I lost my two dogs. My two babies, one 16, one 16 and a half. These were my kids. This has been extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And it's been very difficult watching J.D. grieve and go through that grief and i grieved over losing me it's like will I still be me you know I look in the mirror and go God you're old you know and it's like well you have the lines and the wrinkles and everything showing Now I remember Connie Stevens said one time the secret of not getting old is stay plump (laughs) oh well you know But I have to tell you that there's been a certain amount of ha 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 with some of the people that have told me about my weight all these years that now I'm smaller than they are. (laughs) You know, I gotta be honest about that. But I've had the health problems too. You know, and I found I told my doctor, I said, If I'm in such great damn health, why am I falling apart? And he said, Well, you've abused your body for a long time And he said, There are sometimes things that it would have happened anyway. And see, my mind is well. If you lose weight and you get thin, and everything. Because see, don't you know, thin people never have any problems. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then it, and it talks about we are people who were not usually mixed, and isn't that the truth? I mean, in my own family, you know, when I when I was growing up, my mother's family and and uh, my uh, brother's uh, son and his children and all of those, I looked around one day and I thought, you know, I feel like I'm in for another planet. I wouldn't have chosen any of those people to be in my life, so help me. You know, friends you get to choose, family you just are stuck with, you know. But that's people who wouldn't normally mix. I was in Palm Springs one time speaking at a conference. And uh, in my room that night, we were all after the, the meeting and we had gone back and there was a bunch of us and we were pigging out on salsa and chips and stuff. In my room with a man and his wife from Denmark. There was a girl who said that she was a whore. She was from Mexico. And I said, that's good. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> and I was dressed like Cleopatra. <laughs> I had found this headdress in the gift shop in the Riviera Hotel. And uh, I mean, I was just having lots and lots of fun. Remember when Bo Derek had the beads and everything in her hair? Well, this was the thing that had beads and shells. And it was turquoise and it was cut far like Cleopatra and I did the eyes and everything. And when I talked, I thought this is. and when I stepped out of the room, she had gone Hollywood. For God's sake, I'm in California, I'm gonna go Hollywood. And so I stepped out of my room and the lady across the hall steps out of the room and she goes, That is a statement of personal freedom. And something inside says, You've overshot the runway. Isn't it funny how you always know when you've gone over the end of the runway, it's like when you see the barrier lights going and you're like, oh, I've been here before. What happened here, you know? And so I'm standing there and I'm talking, you know, and I can't hardly see out from under these little beady things hanging down, and I'm thinking that the guy and that, that woman out there look sort of familiar out there at that round table. Um, hmm. I know, but I kept on, you know, because, you know, you go a lot. You meet a lot of different people. And and then in a few minutes, it sort of came to me that there were people standing around. It looked funny standing around. And I looked out and I go, oh, my God, it's the president and his wife. And I'm here like an idiot looking like queer people. <laughs> you know, they thought it was fun. <laughs> they don't have to live with me. <laughs> but these are people who are not normally mixed, you know. I mean, really, you know, but it's the solution that binds us together. And it tells you in the book, sobriety is the beginning. It's just the beginning. And see, it's his beginning. The sobriety is his beginning. It was not my beginning. My beginning had to come much later because I had to hit a bottom. I had to get where I was willing to do the deal and not just go with him to the meetings. I love going to the I activities. Mean, I want to tell you, when I first came in, it was more fun to go to AA than Al-Anon. You know, I always tell them, you know, those little thin-lipped cookie-baking bitches, you know. I I was young. They were old, for God's sake. They must have been 40. They weren't laughing. They weren't having fun in Al-Anon like they were having fun in AA. You go to an AA meeting, there was always lots of laughter. And I just, I really gravitated toward that laughter, you know. But it took me back, you see, I thought my goal was to get him sober, and once he was sober, to keep him sober. That's what I thought the goal was. But it wasn't. That's his. His sobriety has nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing. I can't get him sober. I can't make him drunk. You know? Now, we can make it hard as heck on somebody that's struggling. We can just absolutely do that. But we are not responsible. But for, for what we do, you know. Um, the main problem is in our mind. Oh, well, there we are. We don't know why we do the things we do. How many times have you thought, why did I do that? Why did I say, why didn't I keep my mouth shut? Or you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you arrive where you're going, but you don't remember getting there. Now, are we dangerous during that period? I would think we are. <laughs> You know, now they get, uh, you know, and then my thing is with my road rage, you know. I was very, very aggressive behind the wheel. And I'm telling you, it doesn't take anything, you know. I mean, and this past summer, it's so hot, you know, very, very hot. And when the weather's really, really hot, your temper doesn't take as much to get up there, too. And so this year and last year is the hottest summers we've ever had. You know, we had like 69 days over 100 degree temperature and no rain. And I'm sure y'all had some of the same or whatever, and now we're getting all the rain. After everything's already burned up. But, but I, I found myself screaming at somebody. And I'm God, you haven't done this since you were a newcomer. What is the matter with you? And it's like, I don't know, but take an action, you know. Don't try to sit there and figure out what's wrong with you. Take a corrective action. Once you take corrective action, then you'll find out what was wrong with you, you know. And what it was, I had gotten so into stuff, so into it, you know, and I was so into self. And don't you know it's a plot against me to keep me from going. When you're late, have you noticed that every slow, pokey butthole in the world gets in front of you? You know why? It's their time to be (laughs) out. If you were out at the time you are supposed to be, you'd have missed them. <laughs> you're the one who's out of sync. It's not them. This is their time. Now, you're in their way. Okay. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to have some fun with this. I've got to lighten up. I've got to lighten up about this. And that's when my hair dry broke. And it occurred to me, oh, I have my own little radar gun. <laughs> it sure does like a radar gun cut the cord off, stuck it down in my console. People irritate me, I go, beep, 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 sometimes they pull over. Now, I have a 92 Caprice Classic, one of the big white police cruisers, see? All I need is a blue light. It's against the law. Be has been real hard not to get one anyway. And then God brought this uh, state trooper into my life and I sponsor her. <laughs> and so I don't do that. I don't do that. But I do radar people. You know, and it is I get but what it does, it takes the pressure, the anger out of me because I love the look they give you. And I even do the cops. I go past them while they're doing you back.
1: <laughs>
0: I told her I told her the other day, I said, What can they do to me for radaring with a hairdryer? And she said, Well, they'll just probably put you away for a psychiatric evaluation. (laughs) It talks about it in the big book, that very same thing. It only talks about jaywalking. You ever read the book where it talks about jaywalking? You know, I used men, credit cards, relationships instead of jaywalking, but it was all the same, you know. You know, there's a story about, you know, you go down the street and you fall in the hole. So you pick yourself up and you go down the street and you fall in the hole. And you pick yourself up and you go down the street and you look for the hole. And you fall in the hole, but at least you know the hole is there. And you keep doing this and then all of a sudden one day you think, oh, I go down the street and I know the hole there and I go around the hole. But the day you get well is the day you go down another street. Instead of keep going back to that non-deal, you know. And that's what I did all my life. And, And in order to overcome that, I had to have that power greater than myself working in my life. I had to have God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And there's times I have no mental defense against thinking, thinking. Something happens, and immediately you play an old tape. This is just like, and then all of a sudden you go back, you pick up those old feelings, you bring them into the right now, and now you've really exaggerated the situation that's happened now because it has nothing to do there. It's just that old tape, you know. And that feeling of that resentment or whatever, and it just all comes flooding back, and you have no mental defense against that. So your defense has to come from a power greater than you. It has to. You see, your mind's a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go in alone. And my sponsor tells me all the time, your thinking's broken. Try not to use it so much. But you get exact directions for recovery, not theories, not maybe but specific things to do and not to do. You know, it's a manual for living life on life terms, and it challenges you. And if you don't think you need the program, go out there and try it on your own by yourself. Go out there and just try some controlled thinking, you know, whatever, you know. And that's the retreads. You see them all the time. That's what we call them in our group. Those are the people that come into the program, seemingly get some better, so it's all so wonderful. They're really active for a short period of time or maybe even four, five, six years sometimes you see it, and then you don't see them at the meetings anymore. You wonder, what happened to so-and-so? And you call them, oh, well, I'm busy, I don't have time, but I'm doing fine. You know, I've got those principles, and me and I can do those steps, and I'm just doing fine. And if they live, we get them back. And they don't look too hot when they come back. And it's real hard for them to come back. Always make them real welcome, because it's really hard for someone who, going to have to really, their ego is going to be smashed and their self-esteem when they come back because see, they don't have to admit they were wrong and that they need us again. You know, But I'm real grateful for them because every time I look at one of them I think, it's still crazy out there. They're doing my time so I don't have to go out there and I'm real grateful. But you know, every once in a while you lose one and I lost the woman I sponsored for 10 years last year, you know. She's going to do it in church now. She's me and I'm thinking, oh, that's fine, that's fine, and I wish her well, and I pray for her, but I don't see her anymore. I don't see her around or the same people anymore. I don't see her doing things, and I heard that she was real unhappy on the job. She works for the church.
1: So,
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but all I know is I still love her, and I'm still hoping, and you know, we have prayed people in Dalinong before. And so I'm still trying to pray her back. You know, God just send her back. Just send her back. And God will in his time if he, if she's willing. You know, those kind of things. It just takes a while. I had to learn the proper use of my will. And that is to turn things over. You see, I didn't know there was a difference between being religious and spiritual. And it was when I read the chapter, We agnostics that I began to understand. I just thought I didn't believe in God. And I find that we... We have our own God, not someone else's conception of God. And see, I guess that's what I had had all my life was somebody else's conception of God, and the conception that I had didn't work for me, and I was mad at that. And so it's really important that I understand—not so important that I understand God as much as that my God understands me, you know. And I had to find that kind of a God, and and. Um, when I began that search, my sponsor told me, "She said God can be whatever you want Him to be." And so for a while, God was my sponsor. You know, I would call her, and she was the final say on anything and everything. I still call her, and I obey very much what she says. But I also have another source now. And then after that, I had the group that was there, and I could ask, you know, because two minds, of course, when you put too many online minds together, <laughs> you see this at district and area, and then. Yeah, you know, when <laughs> I mean, you get too many of isn't it always funny, you know, and how many people here have been to an area assembly or a district meeting? You know, you can spend three hours deciding which side of the room is going to be smoking and the other one is non-smoking. It's always been a source of amusement to me. But I had to start the process and I had to be willing to reach out and to look for that. And you know, it was one of the stories in the book is how we came into that phrase, God is to understand God. There was a man who did not believe in God. He was an atheist, and he said, I can't do the deal if the steps have to be written that way. I can't do the deal. And so he went on, and what he understood God to be was a force, not God as they were thinking of it. And he said, please put that in the steps. And it was because of his insistence that we have that, and I think that's one of the most valuable things that we have, because if you tell people they've got to believe a certain way, we would lose so many people. Allow them to come to their own. And uh, I've had a lot of people that uh, understand God a lot differently than I. And it's not important. I sponsored a girl one time, and she said that her higher power was that spaceship from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I said, "She said, what well, you think about that?" I said, "Whatever, you know." And so one day uh, the ship landed. And then after a while, God walked out. It was okay, you know, I mean, there was a process for her. She had been raised in a very strict religious school, uh, and, and she had a thing against religion. And when she heard the word God, that's what she thought of was religion. And so if there, if the minute you begin to be willing to believe, you're on your way. All you have to do is be willing, you know. Do I believe or am I willing to believe? I tried. I was afraid, but I tried. You see, the thing of it is, in my mind, I didn't ask God for help because if there be a God and He cares about you, if you ask for help and He doesn't answer, then you know it's all over. So if you don't ask, there's always the chance that He's there. But if you ask and He doesn't do, then He's not there. That was my crazy thinking. And I had to to take a chance. And one day it happened, it was just real simple, I was just driving home. My car was having major problems. And um, it would turn itself off. Just drive down the road, and turn itself off. And when your car is all power, that means your brakes don't work too good, your steering don't work too good, nothing's working too good here. And the guy told me at the shop that it needed to have his carburetor cleaned out. He said, what happens is trash is getting in your carburetor and it's clogging the engine. And it just keeps the gas from getting there, and so it just turns itself off. And he said, you need your carburetor rebuilt. I said, can't afford to have a carburetor rebuilt. My husband's lost his job. He's just gotten sober. We don't have any money. All the financial stuff is on me. I can't afford it. And he said, well, take a little bottle of gasoline and take off the breather and pour a little bit of gas in there. Start it up. It's going to backfire. Maybe that'll knock the trash loose and you can drive a lot. And I was doing that. It started off, I was doing it like once a week, and I was doing it two or three times a week, and I was doing it a couple of times a day, and I was getting on my nose. You know, I began to smell like a gas pump jockey. And, uh, that's in the days before we pumped our own gas, you know, it's been quite a while. But anyway, so that day I'm driving home, and my car stopped three or four times that day, and I had to get out and do that. And I always loved the ridicule I got from the mail population as they are drive? they the going like, you know, what she's doing it, ha, ha, you Thanks for sharing. But on that particular night, I'd gone by to see my mother, which is always good to make you want to cut your wrist. And uh, I left her house, and I was going home, and I was depressed, and I was upset, and my car stopped again. And I said, God, I am so tired. I am just so tired. i tell you what, this is Miracle Thompson. I live at 409 Healy Street, North Rock, Arkansas. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to pour the last disc gas in there. And if you be God and if you care about me, all I want is I want to go home. I'm tired. And the reason I gave him my name and address was I didn't want him to make sure he wasn't mixing me up with somebody else. That was as sincere as I could be. And so... I got in there and I tried to start the car and it backfired and it chugged and chugged and it quit. And I said, God, it ain't gonna get there like that. It's not gonna, I'm trying now. I'm reaching out. I'm really trying here. So I turned and tried again. It started with chugging and chugging and I said, God, it's not gonna get there like this. It's gonna have to do better than that. And with that, the engine just smoothed right out. And I drove home. And I got out of my car and I knelt down by the side of my car. And I thank the God for giving me home. That was my first real let go and let God trust that God would do something for me. And I walked in the house and the miracle had happened. And I didn't know it, but the miracle had happened. And when I, I got into the house and there was a phone call from a girl I'd gone to school with, I hadn't seen in years. Her daddy was a top mechanic for a Chevrolet company. And he was retired and she said, What's been going on with you? And I was telling her about my car and all this stuff. I wasn't telling her about the God stuff. You know how we are, you know. Hmm. I wonder they're there. I wonder if thinking I'm a religious freak or something. And so uh, she said, "Well, why don't you call my dad and let me fix your car?" And I said, "Well, I don't have any money to get the car fixed." And she said, "Well, my dad would let you pay it off." And I said, "You reckon?" And she said, "Sure." And so. I called her daddy, brought a wrecker over, fixed my car, and I paid him off. Little at a time. See, the minute I took an action, God kicked in and began to do. Now, God had been doing it in my life all along, but I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware because, see, I wasn't ever giving God my cooperation. It makes a difference. See, faith to me is sort of like having muscles. Muscles are there in your arms and your legs and what have you, but they don't do you much good if you don't exercise them because they're not strong enough to do a lot. But the more you exercise them, the more they're there and the stronger they get. And in the very beginning, God did a lot of really, really, really neat things. Not that God doesn't do neat things now, but I was in such a God-awareness mode. It was so new. And it's like God had to do something for me every day or two. I'd forget that God was doing stuff for me. You know, now I have faith. I believe it's going to happen. And I can, I can wait in the process before if I said I was going to let go and let God. I mean, I said, okay, God, get ready. Here it comes. Cause I'm going to give it to you. But you better, you better get be it so liquid. But if you don't, I'm going to take it back. Cause that was the best I could do. And when I heard people sharing what God did for them, what they couldn't do for themselves, and I began to be willing that God would believe, it. If I began to believe that God would do those things for me, then my awareness began to change. And my awareness of the presence of God today is the most powerful reason to have faith. Because I've seen the results. It's easier to have faith when you've seen the results. You know, seeing's believing, you know, it's just easier. And it says came to believe. It doesn't say come to have faith. It says come to believe, you know. And either God is everything or he's nothing. Either God is or he isn't, you know. And I had to make a decision which way I was gonna go. And I heard a guy at a meeting one night and he he made a lot of sense. He said, you know, If I believe there's a God, and you come to find out there isn't, what have I lost? But if I believe there isn't, and there is, then I've lost everything. Now, are you willing to take that kind of chance? I thought, no, no. I've got to believe there is, you know. And so spiritually, some grow spiritually slowly and others go faster. But it comes to all who seek Him. That's a powerful statement. That's, that's a promising step. God comes to everyone who seeks Him. And the book describes a different kind of drinker. Well, and al and I found we have different types of thinkers. The moderate one, the one who's able to accept life on life's terms, pretty good. You know, there are some of us that seem to have a better handle at The hard thinker, who can moderate his behavior, even if difficult at times. Those that can manage to keep their mouth shut, you know, occasionally. Then there's the real al who's lost control of their thinking and does incredible, tragic things trying to control his situation. He's irritable, restless, and discontent, and fearful, and asks himself, why did I do that again? And he says, the problem seems to be in my mind. Now, I all my life I have been this student of logic. If you can read it in a book, all these facts and stuff, if I can read it, man, I can do it. But I couldn't do it. You know, and one of the things that I found is that I really hate my defects. When you have
1: them,
0: (laughs) when I see something that you're doing, it really irritates me. That's when I. There was a guy that came to our meeting, bless his heart, and uh, Larry just got on my last nerve. I mean, I'm telling you, when Larry opened his mouth, I go. Thank God I've been here long enough I keep my mouth shut, but I'm sure my eyes didn't dance, you know. And one of my pigeons said, He's getting the look that's the look that says, Shut up, you know. And Larry would irritate me. And so I would be walking in the morning, and one morning I'm walking along, and I said, God, what is it about Larry that I have that irritates me so much when I see it in Larry? What is it about Larry? So I'm walking, I walk my or four miles, and all of a sudden, I went, oh, no, not that. <laughs> Larry is an opinionated asshole. <laughs> oh, no, not that one. Okay, I went to the meeting that night. Larry's there. You know, Larry didn't bother me. It's because I accepted the me and Larry. Larry. You see, I accepted him, defects and all. I accepted him just like God does me. And, you know, Larry, Larry was one of those who had to go out of this program. Larry was diabetic, and he was in denial about his diabetes. And he had had polio as a child. And uh, so he had a leg that was in a brace, and it was very atrophy. And he would swim every morning. He was a master swimmer. But he didn't regulate his diabetes, and they found him in the bottom of the pool last year. You know, it's such a waste, such a waste, such a, he was a fine man. But, there he is, you know. But for a God, or a power greater than me, he did impossible things for me. See, that's where my faith really began to build when I began to see the impossible happening. You know, it started early on in the program, and then it, it happened all the way through the program. Like, um, when my sister was in the hospital, and I was staying there with her all the time, that's a very expensive proposition, eating in the hospital, paying, parking, all this kind of thing. And uh, we have a, an annual yard party at our house, and it was getting time for the yard party. And I was like, oh, my God, I would have spent all this money, and I don't have money to to get this stuff for the yard party. I wonder what I'm going to do It's pour down rain. I go to the post office. I get out of my car. I look down. There's a dollar bill laying in the in the puddle. I pick it up, Throw it in the car, go on in, do my deal in the post office, come out later. I'm going go over there to get my dollar bill. And it's a hundred dollar bill. And I went, Well God, I would never thought to look for it at the post office parking lot. <laughs> that is neat, you know, and I went to Sam's has got it and everything at like seven dollars of buying everything I needed for the thing. Like, well, isn't that timely? Isn't that neat? And isn't that God? You know, those little miracles, you know. I, I I was um given a computer years ago and uh One of the girls I sponsored, her boyfriend, gave me his uh, old computer, and he just threw me to death. And then all of a sudden, uh, here a few years ago, I thought about, oh, there's email, there's the Internet, there's all that stuff. And this was an old computer, and it wouldn't take care of all that. And so I'm in this big dilemma. It's about this time of the year, you know, Christmas, and I'm telling J.D., I think I need a computer. I need a bigger, faster, whatever. You know how we are. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. You know, once you get into it, it's (laughs) ha, ha, ha. And he said, "Well, what kind do you want?" I said, "I don't know. I have a clue. I have a clue." I said, "I've been given this old one, and I know what to do with this old one, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even know what to go and look for." And he says, "Well, why don't you just research?" So I said, "Okay." So I began to go to every computer store. And my God, will that drive you crazy? You know, because everybody tells you something different. You know, and the the, the keywords, you know, are IBM compatible, and uh, you know whatever that meant. And uh, RAM, 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 mom, who knows. You know, what I mean, they've just got all this other stuff out there, and just give me the just give me the keyboard. I know what to do. Just give me the keyboard. And so, uh, finally, I made my decision, and I and so I said, God, this is what I'm gonna do. Tomorrow, I'm gonna go look at this computer, unless you show me something different. If I'm not supposed to show me no way I can understand, because that's the way God and I sort of operate. You know, I'll tell God, you know, look, I want to do Your will, but I need to know what that is. Now, it looks to me like this is what needs to be done, if this is not it. Shut the doors, do something, show me that it's not working, you know. Bless it or block it, you know. So, way to go. So I'm sitting there and I told Eddie, I said, I made my decision, the phone right I pick up the phone, this guy says, is this Miss Thompson? I said, yes. Yeah. He said, well, this is Santa Claus. I said, really? He said, yes, I live in South Dakota. I said, really? I thought you lived in the North that we have and uh, you won't get it right for Christmas. It'll be a little later because of the amount of orders we have, but uh, it's coming your way, complete with printer, color printer and everything. I said, are you serious? And he said, yes. And I said, well, who are the elves? And he said, they prefer to remain anonymous. Now, see, to me, that's God's skin on it, you know. Because I didn't know, and I got everything and more than what I was, I mean, it's it just, it's been wonderful. The other day somebody, uh, that I sponsored, her husband built computers, she said, would you like a new one? No! I know how to do mine. I don't want no one. I said, I'm doing good with the one I got. Thank you very much. But you know, that shows you I've learned to be content with what I have. Cause for it meets my needs just fine. But the, the amazing thing was God sent the timing. I went on through the holidays, and I'm wondering, where is my computer? Maybe it was a joke. And on my Alan birthday, my computer arrived. And they had no idea that that's when it would arrive. But see, that's the God deal there. See, that's God just saying, ha-ha, I did it again, (laughs) ha-ha. And the miracle is, I recognize it. I recognize it. Because see, so many times, God's doing things for you. That's just like... Somebody said to me, well, what has been good that's come out of this deal with your sister? And I said, well, one of the first things that I saw was when I was in the hospital and laying here and scared death while they're running these wires and stuff through your body, I said, I realized that not knowing I had a heart condition, I could have been out flying down Rula sometime and crapped out and never knew why, you know? I couldn't have taken that thing. And to show you, my heart doctor a couple of weeks ago says, you're doing great. You're doing great. I'm doing uh, normal EKGs and that's really pretty good when you consider I failed the stress test, the nuclear test and all the other tests. But I'm doing really good. I just wish I felt better. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about it is I began to trust. I could be common an in emergency. And if you don't think I can trust, leave home when you don't feel good during this particular week that's not a good week for our family. See, that's the trust. You know, you have to trust that God's going to get you there. God to take care of you while you're here and going to get you back on track again. You have to trust. I could be sane and courteous. I could be a, a good driver again, you know. I could trust God with my finances. That was really difficult. I don't know why anybody could have handled me better and I did. Isn't that funny? You know, God has never run up A credit card, as far as I know. Can you hear God saying, well, I'm maxed out. (laughs)
1: Let's see what she does with that.
0: (laughs) You know, but I found that I could trust God to take care of my loved ones because I'm here. They're there, you know. Um, It's a change. And another thing I found out, I'm a talker. Y'all would never know that. But I've learned to be a good listener. I've learned to listen. Listen to others sharing about their higher power. That has helped me so much to define and redefine and to incorporate into my concept of God. With listening to what other people and they'd say, well, my God does this or I believe God does this. And i will go, that's good. I like that. I want that. And so incorporating in, into my idea of God. And... Um, It gave me more hope and willingness to trust and try harder. You know, so many times, you know, I forget. And if you think that I have been a spiritual giant this year, you're wrong. There have been lots of times when I have felt, you know, God, where are you? Where are you in all this, you know? And uh, like in March when uh, my beloved Voodoo, uh, he died of the same thing my sister did. He died of kidney failure. and, um, And it happened just in a period of four days. And it was so difficult. I'm going, God, I've lost so much already. Where are you here? Where are you here? You know. And it's just one grief after another. But you have to work through those things. And you have, and yes, there's depression that comes with that. That's normal. You know, I think that sometimes we believe that uh, we're not supposed to be normal people. We're supposed to be these giants that, you know, uh, shoot me, I don't bleed, you know, or or hurt me, I'm not going to have pain. And that's not true. Because life continues to go on. I believe there's a God, and if there isn't, what have I lost? Like I said, nothing. I've learned that God lives inside of all of us. You know, I always look for God out there. God lives in here. Didn't have to go anywhere. We come with God already installed inside, you know, it's all like a hard drive. He's already there, you know. He's not, he's not something you add on later, or he's not attached. He's just waiting, and he's the most major resource that I have in my life. These ideas helped me to get rid of my prejudice and encouraged me to look deeply within myself. And when I took that attitude and action, I found God. And guess what happened when I found God? I found me. Because who knows me better than the one who made me? And the more that I'm in touch with God, the more I know about me. And I prefer to believe that there is a God because it works for me. And God always comes to those who seek him. Always. I saw he came, and I became whole on the inside. Those holes that were inside of me that I'd had for a lifetime, they all began to fill up. You see, my answers are spiritual because my problems were spiritual. I thought they weren't. I thought they were problems with people, places, and things. No, it was not. It was what was wrong on the inside of me, because when I got okay on the inside, those people, places, and things got better. It's just like the day I looked at Larry. When I saw what was inside of me, I knew what was inside of Larry. And I realized Larry was a sick person trying to do the best he could. And I can be exactly like him on any given day. And so there's no, there's no, there's no room in that for the criticism and the judgment and what have you. My answers were in a program of action. And I found out the how in chapter five. It told me how to take actions that would make my life different. And there's key words, and if you're not careful, you'll miss some of them. One of the words is thoroughly, thoroughly. It means not hit or miss, but you got to be consistent doing this stuff again and again. You know, we say repetition strengthens and confirms until faith becomes natural. You keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And that's what's helped me so much is the fact that you don't have to want to do it to do it. You don't have to like it to do it. Just do it. And that's how I've been doing this year on other things. I found that principle works in other areas of my life. And another one says, willing to go to any length. It could be inconvenient. might be not what I want to do, but do it anyway. doesn't make any difference. Just do it. You know, I'm not a Nike person, but that's a good slogan. Just do it. See, some of us tried to hold on to old ideas. That's doing the same things over and over, getting the same results. It says the results are nil till you let go absolutely. Well quit debating and surrender. You know, nil. It's like if you get 50%, you think you get 50%, you don't. You don't get anything out of a half ass try. You know, you just don't. It's not worth it. And our thinking is cunning, baffling, and powerful. You see, I trusted my knowledge, but I didn't have wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to use knowledge wisely. I didn't know how to do that, you know. I couldn't trust my thinking. My thinking told me to kill people. <laughs> I'm serious. My thinking did a lot of crazy things to me. You know, my thinking said, drown your husband in the bathtub. <laughs> and I said, okay. When do you want to do it? we'll just find a good time. And the time came and we did. You know, I mean, now, I mean, we laugh about that. J.D. gives tours of the bathtub now, but people come to our home, and when we redid the home, when we remodeled, J.D. would not give up the bathtub. It doesn't have a stopper anymore, but but he'll say, Y'all want to see where she drowned me? I told him, I said, well, when you, uh, when I drowned you out in the pond in the backyard, you can give that as a second highlight on your tour. <laughs> this is what she's going to drown me next, you
1: know,
0: out there in the pond. We had a, <laughs> we had a lot of fun with the pond. But my thinking is, like I say, it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And the thing that motivates my thinking into that is that fear. I didn't realize how fear-based I was. I was afraid of anything and everything. I was afraid I wasn't going to get my way. I wasn't going to get enough. You know, it wasn't going to be the way I wanted it. And how I want it today may not be how I want it tonight. You know, I can be that wishy-washy. How many times, you know, my sponsor had me do a gratitude list, be grateful for what I had. One time she said, make a list of the things that you're grateful you don't have. And I said, what do you mean? She said, all those things you thought you had to have. Now that you don't have, and now you see why you don't have them, and aren't you grateful? And I thought about that, and I thought, yeah. We used to live in Jacksonville. I wanted to buy that house so badly. Never happened. When my landlord was ready to sell, we were renting. And when the landlord was ready to sell, his wife wasn't. And when she was ready to sell, he wasn't sell because she wasn't ready when he was ready. And I understand that kind of thinking, you know. And so finally we just gave up and we moved away. Well, my landlord died and they bought his house which was next door and made a daycare center. I am so grateful we don't I am so grateful we don't have that house. Without help it's too much for us. That means we're gonna need God and other people to help us. Without help. And see, my thing has always been I'm independent, I am woman, I am invincible, I am worn out. You You know. And since my thinking was sick, I had to accept those proposals. And that's, I am obsessive, compulsive, and I don't know how to manage my own life. That's the bottom line. In other words, I'm a failure. That's the good news. That's the good news. When you can look at that and accept the fact that you're a failure in the game called life, because now you can be helped. As long as you think you've got a handle, you can't get help, because you'll continue to try to do it. You know, I can remember thinking, if I got one iota of what I aimed for, it was a success. The plan worked. Even though 99% of it didn't work, I would hang on to that one little item that I got what I thought I wanted, and I would say the plan worked. You know, no human power could have restored my sanity, and in this case, it's the thinking that will work, the thinking that works, but that God could and would if He were sought. And the third step prayer. I love the third step prayer. I say it every day. I don't know how many of you here are student of the big book, but it's God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them might bear witness to those I would help of thy love, thy power, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. You know. And then he tells you to take an inventory. Look at yourself. Now what are the things that you're doing that are the stumbling blocks? What are your assets and liabilities? In other words, what's the truth about you? The good, bad, and the ugly. You know, What is the truth about you? Because until you have the truth, you can't do it because the truth will set you free. That's not just a cliche. It's truth. I learned I have to live free of anger. I cannot manage that kind of anger. It hurts me on the inside. It eats me up to have that kind of anger anymore. And the anger, when I had it, became rage. And the rage became violence. And I hurt myself and I hurt other people because I didn't have a healthy way to work through an emotion. You know, I learned that people who harmed me were spiritually sick and try to give them the same kind of treatment you would a sick newcomer. That's so important. You know, we have so much love and patience with a newcomer. And then we'll walk into our house, And just attack somebody for nothing. We forget that they are sick. You know, most of us are doing the best we can for where we are on any given day. And sometimes that's not too hot. You know, when I'm not good on the inside, when I'm not together with God, then it's going to reflect on the outside. You know, you just you just can't hide that anymore. And I have to give them patience and tolerance. And I was to avoid retaliation. An argument. It says, we cease fighting everything and everybody. And my God, give me a call. You know what I mean? I'll go, you know, it's like, my sister used to call me when she'd have something she couldn't, uh, she, Dorothy hated confrontations, and I thrived on confrontations. And she'd say, I've gotten this bill, and they've charged me for four times for this same thing, and I never did it, and would you handle it? Yes! <laughs> give it to me. By God, I'll get it straightened out and i go into this straightening out frenzy. You know, i call them, I'll go, you know, I'm the kind of person, I've done this before, walking to Dillard's, I didn't get waited on soon enough. I'm standing here two, three seconds. Nobody has come over to me and said, may I help you? I go get on the escalator, go up to the manager's office. I'd like to get something in the such and such department, but I can't get anybody to wait on me. So the manager comes down with you, you know, and you create a scene, get a person in trouble just because, you wanted to get snappy service, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's hard sometimes to get out of there. And like I say, the hardest place i found to work this is in my own home. And I think it's easier to do it in the Al-Anon. It's easier to do it out here and there because I haven't got the, the, the wreckage. You know, there wasn't all that wreckage from the, from all those years of drinking. And even still to this day, those old thinking and those old tapes are hard not to do. And you've got probably more damage to your family and your loved ones. And so, you know, it's like you can do it differently 15 times and then you go back and do it like you did it before. On that 60th time, cause you're human, you screw up and that breaks the trust. And then there, you know, and then that starts that chain again. So I'm always going to have right work to do. And I found that I have to, more than give JD the right to be wrong, I have to give him the right to be right. That, you know, I have to cease fighting with things over him, with things with him because it hurts our communication and our relationship. JD just told me before I came over here and I, he said, I can't hardly stand it. The house is so lonesome when you go now because without any, first time in over 16 years we don't have a baby at home. And I told him, well, I'll be home soon. He said, you know, I was thinking about something today. We very rarely fuss and fight anymore. And I said, well, we've had a lot of other more important things to do. And he said, I think we've learned that we're both real important to one another and that we love each other and that people who love one another don't fuss and fight with one another. And I said, I believe you're right. I believe you're right. Because, you know, one of the biggest fights that I had with him was over that water garden that he loved. He wanted a water garden. He talked about it for a couple of years that he wanted to put in a water garden. I said, well, what are we talking about here? And he said, well, I was thinking of something maybe about hmm, six by twelve or or whatever and uh, a couple of little plants and maybe a little water fountain in the middle. And I said, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And then one weekend I was gone. Now, you know, he has a disease. Bigger, better, more is better, you know. And so when I come back, I get up on Monday morning and my house is a river of mud. And I'm going, where did all this dirt come from? I mean, there's literal mud all in my house and it was raining. But where was the mud coming from? What well, was coming from? The dogs going in and out the pet door. But where were the dogs getting in the dirt? And I went out and there was a swimming pool in the backyard. <laughs> I mean, five foot deep, the pond, you know, and it was supposed to be 18 inches deep, but he got carried away. And when he had all that dirt, he didn't know what to do with it, so he decided to spread it all over the whole yard. And maybe I wouldn't notice it was gone. You know, he's not in the real world either sometimes. And so the dogs had gone out, there wasn't any place in the yard for the dogs to even walk, that they weren't going to get mud. So the whole house was covered in a river of mud. And I had just uh, had the house, um, the professional cleaners come in with the carpet and the furniture and all like that, you know, at Christmas. And this was February. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I, was just, I just went ballistic. And so I'm going to kill him. 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 And so I called my sponsor, and she said, we've been here before. <laughs> and I said, I know. And she said, how long before he comes home? I said, about four hours. She said, maybe enough. To save his life. And so she told me to, to get out of the house, take the dogs, get the dogs bathed, get her out, let the stuff dry, cause you can't get wet mud up, you have to let it dry. And so when he came home that day, I had the dog out in the front yard, because they couldn't go out in the backyard anymore, and have them on these leashes, and I'd been taking them in and out about every 30 minutes, not knowing how often they go, because they go on their own. And, uh, He said, What's the matter? I said, Go in and look at the house and then give me the solution. And when I went in, he was sitting at the bar with his hands like Oh God, oh I said, God ain't gonna save you. I'm gonna kill you. He said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry And I said, What possessed you? He said, Well, I just decided I wanted bigger and I said, You never mentioned you were gonna put it in this room, no, I didn't wanna tell you. And see, that, that was another thing that irritated me. I'd been left out of the loop. I'd lost control. Lost control. And so, uh, the water garden was a bad thing. And everything that went with the water garden was bad. And I told him, I said, it's too deep, it's dangerous. I said, if the dogs fall in, they'll drown. He said, they can swim. I said, not forever. I said, you know, you go in, you swim, but when you, when a dog's in a lake, they can walk out. The water graduates, you know. It's not just, boom, off the deep end. I said, the dog will drown. And I said, they can't swim and then propel themselves up out of the water. That's not going to happen. And so we, we reached an impasse, and so we thought about it for several months. And then finally I had to come to a realization that this was his dream, it was different than my dream, but I have to allow him the right to dream, and I was wrong. And I told him I was wrong. And, uh, anyway, so now, you know, we work together, you know, and we've, we've laughed a lot about the water garden. He's got it real pretty, actually. Has a waterfall on one end, a fountain on the other, and all these plants, and he's got a bunch of rocks and things from all over, my rocks, that I gathered <laughs> all those years. That was my contribution to the the water garden to keep the dogs from jumping in and it was the rock wall around it and now we have a big natural rock bench and now behind it we have our little dog cemetery now and uh, so we go out and we sit and on the bench and we listen to the water and we talk to our babies you know uh, but you know when I became willing God decides to wherever possible and uh, because I had to make an amends for that and the way I make amends for that is being kind to him and being supportive about his water garden and I couldn't help but to get tickled because uh, year before last he was out there cleaning it out in the spring of the year to keep it from becoming slime city and of course you have to get in it you know it's pretty deep you know you gotta get in it and so he's out there and he did that while I was gone and he told me, he said, he looked sort of mangled when I got back, and I said, what happened to you? And he said, well, I was cleaning out the water garden. And he said, and I got in, and it was so slick, I couldn't get out. <laughs> he said, I stumbled stumbled, but he said, there was just so much stuff in there. I was so slick, I could not get out. And I said, well, how did you get out? He said, well, I was there till I pruned. And he said, and I started praying. I said, God, am I going to have to be here all weekend? So she or somebody comes over and helps me out of the garden. And he said, I need some help. And he said, God sent some help. And I said, what was that? And he said, across the pond came a snake. <laughs> he got out. He, but he's mangled on the rock, but he got out, you know. <laughs> Talking the talk is easy, and walking the walk is hard, but it's the most rewarding. It's helped me do healthy relationships, and I've learned to go with the flow a lot. I've learned a lot of love and tolerance It says we cease fighting other people. You learn about prayer and meditation, and you talk to God and listening to God in order to receive your good, orderly directions. And that the failure, I found today that failure to enlarge my spiritual life is like planning a relapse. If you don't keep working on your spiritual growth, you know, we don't maintain very well. There's only one way to coast, and that's downhill. I have to spend time with God if I want to know God and understand what my job is, what I'm supposed to do. All I have to do is show up and ask God, what do you want me to do today? How can I be of best use today? And step 12, as it says in the book, helps me uh, to practice all the principles in all my affairs. And how do I carry a message? You know, I, I never knew what my purpose was in my life. You ever wonder what, you know, is this all there is? What is your purpose? You know, it tells you very, your purpose is to be of use to God and your fellow man. For the first time in your life, you have a purpose, and it helps me through the sponsorship, which we'll talk about tomorrow, because I have to remember the people are ill. I don't want to be an evangelist or reformer, and I just try to be helpful. I don't try to far, force a change. I just have to be a maximum health, helpfulness. And there's a chapter 8, To the Wives. Now, this was written in 1939. It describes the hurtful things that we do trying to stop an illness. It's real good. It's a real good chapter. It gives a lot of do's and don'ts to help in your recovery. It explains that some people can't quit drinking no matter how hard they try, you know. And I think it, it taught me to be grateful that I was not the one that had that disease. Can you imagine what I would have been like drunk? It talks about our fears, it talks about our embarrassments, and they are just to try the 12-step program. And you remember in 1939, Al-Anon hadn't happened, and they were encouraging us to work the AA program. There was no such thing as Al-Anon. And since we all got sick together, it just made sense to all get well together. And the family members were invited to the AA meetings in those, old, in those early years. It was a family illness. The family afterward gives me lots of good actions to take and emphasizes the need for tolerance, understanding, and love. And it says, learn from your past. Learn from your past experience and that of others. It teaches you not to keep secrets and that the fellowship is a good place to be able to bring the skeletons out of the closet. I remember I had so much guilt and I was so afraid somebody was going to find out about all that violence that I had done and we had this little old lady that was in our group and uh, Louise was from Oklahoma originally and her husband had been sober 30 years at that time and just a sweet little grandmother type lady and she said, and I love to take this cord and string it across the top of the steps. She said, we lived in an apartment house and I think when Walker comes home, he'll trick and break his damn neck. <laughs> and I thought, God, I love her. <laughs> I do not know? And she said, when Jack was drunk, I'd take a baseball bat and beat on him. He never remembered. (laughs) And I thought, yeah. But you see, it was when they would share those things that it gave me permission to get rid of those secrets. When we share those things within ourselves, it brings it out. And it also talks about anonymity, that I'm to tell my story, not other people's stories. It talks about the sensitivity of an alcoholic. Well, I can be just as sensitive, you know. It talks about the alcoholic being people of extremes, and aren't we the same way? You know, it talks about living in a being immature and living in a world of make believe. That's what I, that's what denial is all about. Denial is make believe because it's certainly not reality. And so now we have a greater sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We can have our head in the clouds as long as our feet are firmly planted on the ground. And one of the things that it says that just made me happy all over is we are not a glum lot. We insist upon having fun. You know, and if it hadn't been fun, I wouldn't have stayed here. It says cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. You know, what more could you want? You know, it says, avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery. Now, boy, you can do that if you get there and start going about your your sorry lot in life or what you didn't get or what you want. You know, the chapter to the employers gives helpful suggestions in working with others, regardless if it's an employee. I found it helps in sponsorship. And a vision for you explains all about the fellowship. You know, the fellowship became the substitute for liquor, in my husband's case. But the fellowship became a substitute for my obsessing, my bitching, my complaining. In other words, I got to where people were and we had fun together. To me, I loved it before styrofoam. (laughs) Did you ever think about how much fellowship you've lost because of styrofoam? Because in the old days we used to wash the cups. And when you'd stand there washing and drying and putting those cups away, You had a meeting after the meeting. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. It gives us hope when it talks about more will be revealed. And the answers will come if your house is in order. You know, It's just telling you, as long as you keep yourself spiritually fit, God will show you what you need to do. And you must continue to have spiritual growth. And it gives you ways to do that. You have to keep working the steps. You don't just do it once and stop. You do it again and again and again. Because if you're not going forward, you're going backward. And then it says, We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. Now I hated the word trudge. But did you know in the nineteen thirty nine the definition of trudge was go forward with purpose. It wasn't bad. You know, and think when I think of trudge, I think of like walking in mud barefooted where you go you know, that kind of thing. And that's not it. It was all going forward with a purpose. And so then trudge becomes good. And people say, well, what's the object of the book? Is it to get the alcoholics sober?" Absolutely not. The book tells you it's to enable you to find a power greater than yourself that will solve all your problems. That's the purpose of the book. It didn't have anything to do with drinking at all. Isn't that a surprise? And that's why the big book's mine. It's a manual for living. And when I forget what to do, it's right there, reminding me, one day at a time as I pick it up and follow the directions, I get the results. And if you're not familiar with the big book about Alcoholics Anonymous, try studying it with an open mind and try to relate and find you on those pages. And if you are like me, my friend, you have got a great journey ahead of you. Thank you.